If you'd like to spend some time with real people with a real heart for God, we welcome you to visit us at Harvest Church in Alexandria, Virginia. Our Sunday morning services are held at 1030, and our Family Night Fellowship takes place on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Come experience God's awesome, life-changing power as we worship in His presence, fellowship with one another, commit to discipleship, and share God's love through evangelism. For more information or directions, visit HarvestNova.com. That's HarvestNova.com. We're continuing today our series on the kingdom. The kingdom. Uh, We've been doing this for several weeks now, and uh, I believe the Lord has been showing us some things, and so... Uh, We're going to continue this series today. Uh, I want to quickly review our uh, message from last week. If we can go to that next slide. Last week uh, we talked about kingdom mandate. Kingdom mandate. And we asked and answered this question. What do we need to understand about the kingdom mandate in order to fulfill it? We know a mandate is an assignment. It's a, a task that's been assigned. What do we need to understand about the kingdom mandate to fulfill it? We said, first of all, it stands on a divine promise. Jesus told the early disciples, wait for the gift my father promised. Secondly, we said the divine mandate requires a divine power. It It requires a divine power. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And thirdly, we said the kingdom mandate instills a divine purpose. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. We had a great time seeking the Lord around the altar. Some of you, uh, I could just sense, uh, have become hungry for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And I want to encourage you, keep seeking that gift. Keep opening up your spirit to the Lord. Invite the Holy Spirit to come and invite Jesus uh, to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And that, that, that gift will well up from within you. And you'll have a power like you've never known before if you haven't received that already. So um, with that introduction, I want to move to today's message. Uh, Today's message is entitled Kingdom Life. Kingdom Life. Uh, We're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount for the next uh, several parts of this series. Uh, We begin today in Matthew chapter 5 the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most familiar passages in the entire New Testament. It has been designated variously as the Christian Magna Carta, the Christian Manifesto, the Design for Life. Uh, Someone came up with this lengthy title, the Compendium of Rules for Christian Living, or simply Kingdom Ethics. No passage of Scripture has had more books, articles, or sermons devoted to it than the Sermon on the Mount. Now, what's the setting of this sermon? I want to set that briefly before we move further. There were three primary groups uh, around Jesus during his time of public ministry. The first was his disciples who had made a commitment to him as Messiah. And that doesn't just include the twelve. As a matter of fact, at this point, all of the twelve had not yet been appointed but includes anyone who was devoted to him, who received him as Messiah. Secondly, there were the religious leaders, especially the Pharisees who opposed him continually uh, in everything he did and everything he taught. The third group of people around Jesus were the crowds, those who were curious about him. They were astounded by his miracles and his teaching, and uh, they had a generally neutral uh, attitude toward him, 
as far as his claims of being the Messiah, but they were open to his message. Now, we begin in Matthew chapter 5, verses uh, 1 and 2, sets the setting for this uh, passage. It says, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. So the Sermon on the Mount was primarily directed toward his disciples. And that has implications for you and me. How many disciples of Jesus do we have here today? Quite a few, amen? So this is for us, uh, as if we didn't know that already, all right? At the very center of the Sermon on the Mount is the concept of the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew calls it, or the kingdom of God, uh, what we've been talking about the last several weeks. And the first part of the Sermon on the Mount deals specifically with life in God's kingdom. So that's why we're talking about kingdom life today, kingdom life. The next, over the next few minutes, I want to answer the question, what are some characteristics of life in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God? Some characteristics of kingdom life. The first one is this, and it's something that I probably don't have to tell you because I would think you would readily agree with this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. The first characteristic of kingdom life is that the kingdom life is a blessed life. Can I get any amens on that? We read here beginning in verse number 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, most of us are probably somewhat familiar with the preamble to the U.S. Constitution. Have you ever heard that? We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Anybody ever heard that before? Of course you have. This opening paragraph clearly communicates the intentions of the framers of the Constitution and the purpose of the document. Similarly, the Beatitudes, which we're going to look at here, uh, serve as a, pre, a sort of preamble to the Sermon on the Mount, summarizing the principles of kingdom life that will follow. The key word here uh, in this first principle, that the kingdom life is a blessed life, the key word, of course, is the word blessed. Uh, the beginning word of each statement in the Beatitudes. The Greek word translated blessed is the Greek word uh, makarios. And while it can be translated as happy or fortunate, its meaning is a little more nuanced than that. Uh, the idea behind makarios is that something is made large or lengthy. When God blesses us, he extends his benefits to us. 
The word has the connotation of being fully satisfied. And the term beatitude comes from the Latin translation of this Greek word, the beatitudes. So this passage then describes the benefits or the blessings God extends to various types of people in his kingdom. Now, we need to understand, because a lot of people have been confused about this throughout the ages, this is not a set of ethical commands to obey. Because when some people hear the Beatitudes, they think, boy, that's a standard I can never reach. And, and, and they become discouraged. But it's not a set of ethical commands to obey. It is a list of the blessings that come to those who live the kingdom life. Okay, do we understand that? A list of the blessings that come to those uh, who live the kingdom life. I want to look at them uh, for a few minutes. First of all, blessed are the poor in spirit. Probably the best word to describe the poor in spirit here in verse 3 is the word desperate. The poor in spirit are those who stand without pretense before God, stripped of all self-sufficiency, self-security, and self-righteousness. Someone described them as spiritually bankrupt. I believe the, uh, the, the verse in Psalm 40:17 describes their state. Uh, the psalmist there says, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Oh my God, do not delay. You ever feel poor in spirit? You ever feel completely and totally dependent on God and spiritually bankrupt? Those are the poor in spirit. And the Lord says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom reign of God, which will be fully consummated in the future. Remember us saying that? Uh, the kingdom of God, nevertheless, has come to the poor in spirit in the present. God is their sufficiency, their security, their righteousness. They draw on kingdom resources now. So uh, one of the blessings of kingdom life is that we who are poor in spirit, we who lack self-sufficiency, we who are unable to meet our own needs can find our needs met uh, because we receive kingdom life now. God is our sufficiency. God is our security. God is our righteousness today. Can you say amen? Talk about a blessing. The Lord does for us what we can't do for ourselves. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Secondly, in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. This refers to those with a sense of loss and helplessness. It's reflective of Isaiah 61, where mourning is expressed due to Israel's sin and the loss that resulted as God's people were exiled to a foreign land. So it includes mourning over sin and grieving loss. You know, there's nothing in life that reveals a lack of control and insufficiency more than mourning. There's no feeling like mourning, is there? The sense of loss can be overwhelming sometimes. And when we're mourning, we realize that our only hope lies beyond, beyond our own capabilities. You know, when someone is mourning the loss of a loved one, it's hard to know what to say, isn't it? It's hard to know what to say to comfort them. And we come out with the cliches, don't we? We, we, they're in a better place or this or that or, or they're mourning some other type of loss. It's hard to know what to say. But Jesus said that there is a blessing upon those who mourn. Why? Because he says, for they will be comforted. Those living life in the kingdom will grieve but not without hope. 
I love, I love the way the Apostle Paul phrased it when he said that. We mourn, we grieve, he said, but not like those without hope. Aren't you thankful for that distinction this morning? We have a hope that lies beyond the grave. Uh, the, the, those who mourn will mourn over sin and evil, but they will receive comfort from God himself. Nothing in this world can match the comfort that God gives to those who mourn. Revelation 22 points to a time when there will be no, mo no more mourning, no more grieving. Are you looking forward to that day? Amen. But in the meantime, God's comfort comes to those who mourn. You talk about a blessing. There's no comfort like the comfort of Almighty God. Blessed are those who mourn. Thirdly, blessed are those, uh, blessed are the meek in verse 5. Who are the meek? The meek are those who are gentle and humble, who don't assert themselves to advance their own causes. Uh, being gentle, as Jesus described himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, however, is not being weak. We need to understand that. Being meek, being gentle, being humble is not synonymous with being weak. I think when you look through the scriptures, Jesus was anything but weak. Would you agree with me on that? Remember when he threw the money changers out of the temple? <laughs> he wasn't weak, but he was meek. He was humble. He was gentle. Uh, he was meek for this reason. He knew where his power came from. He knew where his power came from. And you and I can display a meek spirit for the same reason. We know where our power comes from. It's not in our assertiveness. It's not about uh, being boisterous or asserting our own way, is it? Our power comes from above. And so there's a blessing pronounced on the meek, the humble, the gentle. Uh, what is that blessing? He says, for they will inherit the earth. Psalm 37, 11 says, the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. The meek receive a spiritual inheritance now and will rule and reign with Christ in his future kingdom. Revelation 2.26 says this, To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the humble. You know, when we uh, assert ourselves and try to manipulate others and manipulate situations by the force of our will, by a loud voice, by, by, by being harsh, all we're doing is imitating the ways of the world. And, you know, the world says, assert your rights. The world says, man, if you don't force your way in there, if you don't look out for number one, nobody will. But that's not the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom is to be like Jesus, to be meek, to be humble and gentle. Why? Because we know where our power comes from. Hallelujah. The meek will inherit the earth. We will rule and reign with Christ. The meek, blessed are the meek. Fourthly, verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness refers to right standing before God and conduct in keeping with that standing. It includes our personal righteousness and also societal justice. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to desire it as one physically craves the necessities of life. There is no stronger desire in all of humanity than a, a starving person for f his desire for food, is there? Or someone who is parched and needs uh, water. Jesus pronounced a blessing on those who have that kind of passion 
for the righteousness of God. Those who have a hunger and thirst for righteousness are aware of their lack of inherent righteousness and acknowledge their need to receive it from God. Where does our righteousness come from this morning? From our good works, from our effort? No. We receive a righteousness from Jesus Christ. Amen. The, the Word of God says His righteousness is applied to our lives. And we need to hunger and thirst for that righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. God satisfies the desire for righteousness through Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, uh, the Word of God says, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The religious leaders of Jesus' day fo focused on attaining righteousness through rigid adherence to the law. I'm going to talk more about that in a moment. But that didn't work. You know, the, the rigid adherence to a code of ethics, to a law, is not how we attain righteousness. It didn't work then, and it doesn't work now. But those who live in the kingdom have a hunger and thirst for righteousness, and they are blessed. Fifthly, and verse number seven, blessed are the merciful... The merciful are those who withhold judgment against the guilty and offer pardon and forgiveness instead. The basis of one's ability to show mercy stems from the fact that he himself has received mercy from God. Having received divine mercy, he now extends it to others. Remember the parable of the unforgiving servant who was forgiven a small debt, but a large debt, but then refused to forgive a small debt that was owed to him? Uh, that's the opposite of mercy. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were merciless toward those who had transgressed the law. But those who live in the kingdom extend mercy. Jesus says their blessing is that they will be shown mercy. Showing mercy does not earn mercy, which by its nature cannot be earned. But a merciful person has the kind of heart which makes mercy available to him both now and at the final judgment, when the ultimate outpouring of mercy takes place. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. How many can slip your hand up with me and say, I've been shown mercy? Mercy is not receiving what we deserve. The other side of that coin is grace, receiving what we don't deserve. Thank God for grace. But thank God for His mercy. None of us deserve the blessings that God pours out on us. None of us can earn it. None of us are worthy. But God extends his mercy to us. Blessed are the merciful. And God, as God has extended his mercy to us, we need to extend mercy to other people. We need not to be harsh. We need not to be judgmental. Jesus said, you, you know, don't, don't worry about the speck in someone else's eye when you got this big log sticking out of your own. Right? That's, a, that's an absurd picture, but it's a, a metaphor. So, so blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Number six, verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart. The word pure here is from the Greek word katharos, meaning unmixed, unadulterated, unalloyed. Purity was an important religious theme of the day, but the attempt to create purity through the keeping of a religious code or set of rules was exactly backward. What do you mean, Pastor Tim? Well, purity, the scriptures tell us, 
Purity comes from the heart and works its way outward into one's actions. Purity never works from the outside in. If I do this, if I don't do this, if I'm in line with this, if I follow this set of rules, if I follow this, then I'm going to have, I'm, that's going to work its way inward and I'm going to be a pure person. It doesn't work that way. Purity works from the inside out. In Psalm 51.10, David's uh, psalm of repentance, he said, Create in me a pure heart, O God. The pure in heart stand with complete integrity and complete transparency before God and live without pretense before the world. You see, when our hearts are pure, actions will follow. When, when, when our hearts are pure before God, that's going to take care of the behavior. But actions can never create a pure heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus said, for they will see God. Exodus 33.20 states that no man can see God and live, but to see God in the sense of this verse is to stand before him, accepted into his presence at the end of time. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. They will be accepted into God's presence. Number seven, blessed are the peacemakers. Verse nine, peace here is the completeness and wholeness in every area of life. A peacemaker is more than one who makes peace between two parties, but one who actively works to, at making peace, bringing wholeness and well-being to others, having first received it in his own heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the ones who bring wholeness and completeness to everyone with whom they come in contact. Jesus pronounces a blessing. He says, for they will be called the sons of God. God confers the title of sonship on peacemakers. Uh, sonship is a interesting, an interesting concept in Scripture. It, it speaks of more than a birth relationship. Sonship uh, speaks of a mature relationship. No other title could more perfectly express the intimate relationship between God and man. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. We will stand in, in, in relation to him as sons. If you know uh, the, 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 the practice and the laws of the New Testament, the son, particularly the oldest son, uh, would, would be in a place of favor in the household. He would receive the, the, the lion's share of the inheritance. He would, he would receive the blessing from the Father. And, and the word of God says, peacemakers shall be called sons of God. What a blessing. And then number eight uh, in verses 10 through 12, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. These are those who have suffered undeserved persecution because of their stand for righteousness. Let me tell you, in case, in case you don't know, Pastor Dave made uh, reference to it today. Our, our world is getting sicker by the moment. And we as Christians need to take a stand. And let me tell you, we're going to receive persecution for it. I heard about something today in Dallas, Tech, or this week, in Dallas, Texas, of, of all places. And I, I can't even describe from the pulpit what kind of event took place in Dallas, Texas, and people, it was designed for children, and people dragged their children to this. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I can't, I can't even describe it from the pulpit. It's that vile. Talk about needing to stand up for righteousness. 
Jesus said in verse 11, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. There are three types of mistreatment mentioned here. Insults, persecution. Uh, you, many of you know the history of many first century Christians. They were thrown to lions. They were burned uh, they, at the stake. They were, thrown, uh, they were stoned, etc., uh, etc. Et Insults, persecution, and slander. Because of the Lord's Supper, it was said that Christians uh, believed in cannibalism. Jesus said, eat my body and drink my blood. The supposed immorality because of the love feast, and supposedly they promoted insurrection because of their speaking of the end of the age. So uh, insults, persecution, and uh, slander. But Jesus pronounces three blessings. He said that those who are persecuted because of righteousness' sake, he said, first of all, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, just as in verse 3, the future blessings of the kingdom of God are theirs now. Secondly, he said, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. In Romans 8, 18, Paul said uh, that the, the, the glory of heaven, the blessings of heaven far outweigh our suffering in this life. Do you believe that? We don't know a whole lot what it's like to suffer in this country for righteousness sake. But let me tell you, it's coming. It's coming, church. And we need to remember that greater in heaven is our reward uh, than the amount of suffering we might endure uh, on this earth. And then Jesus said that in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We think of Jeremiah who was lowered uh, waist deep into a pit of mud. And there are other examples. The implication here is that modern day believers will receive the same reward as those faithful prophets who were persecuted. The kingdom life is a blessed life. No matter what we go through, the blessing of God rests upon us. Heard about a man who had been a drunkard in the slums of Chicago for many years. He came to a, a mission one night. He heard the message. He ate the meal and went to bed. And that was his last night on earth. He died poverty-stricken and friendless, never to see another day. What he didn't know, however, was that he had an inheritance of over $4 million waiting for him in England. The authorities had searched for him but were unable to find him because he had no address. Here was a man who had all the material wealth he could want, but he lived and died in poverty. Church... We need to be aware of the blessings we have. Kingdom life has its blessings. Amen? Heard another story about a man named Robert Chapman. One morning, uh, a man came down. He, he was a very influential man. Winston Churchill was taken to visit him as a young man. And one time, a, a, one day, a friend came to him and said, uh, how are you doing today, Mr. Chapman? He said, I'm burdened this morning. But when he said it, he had a big smile on his face. Friend said, are, you're burdened. Are you burdened? Are you really burdened? Yes, he said, but it's a wonderful burden. It's an overabundance of blessings for which I cannot find enough time or words to express my uh, gratitude. He said, I'm referring to Psalm 68, 19, which says that he daily loads us with benefits. So I'm burdened down this morning with all the blessings that God has given me. What a great outlook on life, amen? Blow somebody's mind. When, next time somebody says, how you doing? Because we say, how, how are you doing? And we really don't always want to hear, do we? It's just kind of, ah, how you doing? 
Say, oh, I'm, re I'm, really bur I'm really burdened down. What do you mean? God's been blessing me so much, man, I can't hardly stand it. <laughs> Kingdom life is a blessed life. Stick with me for a few more minutes. What's the second... Uh, thing uh, we need to understand. Second characteristic of kingdom life, it's this. The kingdom life is an influential life. The kingdom life is an influential life. In verse 13, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. You are the salt of the earth. Salt, of course, was a common household item. It was used for three purposes. Purification, cleansing a wound, for example, seasoning food, and as a preservative. Obviously, in the days before refrigeration, uh, something was needed to help preserve meat, for example, and so salt would be used for that purpose. But Jesus said, if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Now, strictly speaking, sodium chloride, which is the chemical composition of salt, cannot lose its properties, but it can be contaminated. Uh, salt around the Dead Sea uh, would become mixed with other minerals and become contaminated. And what was left might have looked like salt, but it was of no practical use. It just became road dust. Similarly, if believers become spiritually contaminated, we need to hear this, church. If we become spiritually contaminated so we lose our distinctive qualities as citizens of God's kingdom, we are unable to fulfill our purpose of influencing those around us to receive the kingdom. Put another way, if we become just like the world around us, we can't influence the world into the kingdom of God. We need to understand that. As citizens of God's kingdom, we must retain our kingdom mindset so we can act as a purifying agent, a seasoning agent, and a moral preservative in a sinful world. Uh, church, as we've emphasized earlier in this series, we are not of this world. We are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of another kingdom. Amen? We are to be different. We are to have a different mindset. We are citizens of another kingdom. We are the salt of the earth. Jesus said, secondly, you are the light of the world. Light in scripture is a metaphor for truth and goodness. Jesus referred to himself as the light of the world in John 8, 12. Believers are reflectors of his light, tasked with bringing the light to all corners of a dark world. Jesus said, a city on a hill can not be hidden. This may have been a reference to Jerusalem, called elsewhere a light to the Gentiles. Say, what's the point? The point is such a city stands out. It's a city on a hill. The lights of the city are uh, available for all to see. It can't be missed. Christ's light in believers' lives should be just as obvious. Jesus said, you're a city on a hill. You, you're, you're, the, the light of the kingdom, the light of Jesus Christ should be uh, obvious in your lives. He went on to say, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl instead. They put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. The lamp in a typical home was a clay container with oil drawn up by a wick. It was placed on an elevated stand to give light 
to the whole house. Since an extinguished lamp was difficult to rekindle, when people went out, they would cover the lamp with a bowl, but they wouldn't extinguish the flame. But when they returned, the lamp would be uncovered and lifted up to the stand again. Jesus said, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. We need to understand, of course, that good deeds can never merit our salvation. How many know that's true? Paul said we're saved by grace through faith, not by our works. So we could, we could do more good deeds than anyone else on the planet. That wouldn't gain us salvation. We know that. We're saved by grace through faith. However, good works are important. Because Jesus said when people see the good works that we do, where does the glory go? Where, where should it go? To God the Father. See, that's evidence. So uh, we're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. We are of a kingdom mindset. We are influencers. And, and, and we, we forget sometimes how important that is. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. You are to influence people into the kingdom of God. And God receives glory through our good works. The kingdom life is an influential life. A young American lawyer boasted that he was going west to find some place where there were no churches, no Sunday schools, no Bibles. He said, I want to get away from all that stuff. But before the year was over, he wrote a classmate, a young minister, begging him to come out west where he was and to start a Sunday school and preach and, quote, bring plenty of Bibles, closing his letter with these words. I have become convinced that a place without Christians and Sundays and churches and Bibles is too much like hell for any living man to stay in. <laughs> He found out differently because kingdom people, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a role to play in society, church, whether we realize it or not. I close with this illustration. Hudson Taylor was a British Protestant Christian missionary to China and founder of the China Inland Mission. He spent 51 years in China. The society that he began was responsible for bringing over 800 missionaries to the country uh, who started 125 schools and directly resulted in 18,000 Christian conversions, as well as the establishment of more than 300 um, stations of work with more than 500 local helpers in all 18 provinces. He was known for his sensitivity to the Chinese culture, even uh, dressing in the traditional uh, Chinese garb, uh, although uh, other missionaries didn't do that at, at the time. And he, he did a great work. And if you ever want to read an inspiring biography, read one of Hudson, missionary Hudson Taylor. A number of years ago, once, of course, the communist uh, government was in place in China, they commissioned an author to write a biography of, of Hudson Taylor, but not to praise him. They wanted him to distort the facts of Hudson Taylor's life and uh, present him in a bad light. They wanted to, to discredit the name of this Christian missionary. So the author was doing his research and he became in, increasingly impressed uh, by what he found of Taylor's uh, character and his godly life. And he, he found it more and more difficult to carry out his assignment of discrediting this man of God. 
eventually, at the risk of losing his life, he laid aside his pen, he renounced his atheism, and he received Jesus Christ as his personal savior. Just by researching the life of a godly man. The kingdom life is an influential life. We impact those around us, whether for good or for evil. We need to remember that. You see, we, we forget. We think, we, we get so uh, cocoon-like. that just, it's, it's just all about me and getting through my, my challenges and going through my experiences. And we forget. We are called to influence others. In closing this morning, we ask the question, what are some characteristics of life in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God? First of all, we said the kingdom life is a blessed life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom life is a blessed life. Church, we, we whine and complain about so many little inconveniences, don't we? We need to remember we live a blessed life. Kingdom living is blessed living, amen? Secondly, the kingdom life is an influential life. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. We make a difference. I know it's easy to see what's happening in the world and to be overcome uh, with pessimism. But let me tell you, we are here for a reason. There's a reason that when we got saved, God just didn't sweep us up to heaven, amen? We're here to influence the world around us. Kingdom life is a blessed life, and it's an influential life. May we live life to the fullest, the kingdom life to the fullest. Amen.